Okay, we resume our studies in the book of Romans. We had a little um, pause there. Uh, Not something that we anticipated, but God did. And I'm going to tell you why. Because if when I was to present Romans 9, if I at that time presented Romans 9, It would be different than it is today. Now, I'm going to explain that as we go through. Hopefully, you'll be able to understand. But I had what I believe now was a view in errancy before. You say, how long before? Years? Weeks. Weeks. And there are good men, good godly men, who believe in all five points of Calvinism or four points of Calvinism, good godly men that we're going to share space with in eternity. I want you to know that. I'm not going to start rattling off names. It doesn't matter. But they are good godly men that have a full understanding of the redemptive plan of the Lord Jesus Christ as he unfolded it from before time ever began. So let's begin reading this portion and we'll try to get into it as much as we can. Am I going to finish it? No. I'll tell you that right now. You're not going to finish this in that short a session. Verse number one, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternal, blessed God, one of the strongest affirmations of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is right here in that verse. And that's the central focus of what we are dealing with today. He is the eternal, blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are Israel. Nor are they all children because they are seed of Abraham. But in Isaac it says, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are children of the flesh. Those who are not the children of God. But the children of promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise at this time. I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, there's a distinction there, even by our father Isaac. For the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said of her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved and Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? 
Is there unrighteousness with God? This is the strongest affirmation of a big fat no that there is in Scripture. The best the English language could do was certainly not. Now leave it there. Don't go there. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he will wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? Now, I want you to see that word you. Watch that word you. Who's he speaking of? The nation of Israel. Now, that'll play out big. It says, you will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who forms it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another dishonor? What if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with such long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says, Also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah Isaiah also cried out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sands of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained a righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. But as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. What on earth 
is this saying. I want you to understand something right at the very outset. This is in accords with national Israel. This whole section is dealing with the nation by which the God of heaven in his sovereign will deigned to use to bring forth the message of the Messiah. The Son of God that would come and be the redemption of all the world. Now, we can pull all kinds of stuff out of this. And it's going to leave you with more troubles in your hermeneutic. In other words, what you funnel your knowledge of the Scriptures through than you can even imagine. First of all, we have an infinite God. Andrew said, we can't stuff God into our brain work. Don't do it. He is an infinite God who deigned to deliver to us some infinite principles from the Word of God of which they will remain a mystery. They're still a mystery. They've been battling this for century after century after century. It will still remain a mystery. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're not going to get all that far today. Because just to lay out this thing is, oh my goodness, I've heard so many messages on this same subject. It's just incredible. First Corinthians chapter 13, and we are dealing with verse number 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. That, that's Paul the Apostle, after that grand layout of what love is really all about. He says, we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. What's that which is perfect? We've got the completed scriptures. We have the absolute complete word of God before us. That's true. It says, but when, uh, verse, verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Everything's good so far. Then verse 12. For now we see in a mirror, dimly. We can't know everything. It's still dim. As we look into that mirror, we cannot make out a lot of the details of the divine sovereignty of God Almighty. We will never be able to do it. Now we look in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part... I know in part. But then I shall know just as I also am. And now abides faith, hope, love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. John Calvin said it this way. Hmm. John Calvin? Whoa. You'll only know about 80%. You're never going to understand everything that the scriptures lay out. Because who's the writer? It's an infinite God. And he's channeling it into finite man. And we will never know all the answers. We can say with Paul, I know whom I have believed. 
And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I'm saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 9. I think it can be laid out this way. Because we're going to be in chapter 9 now. Chapter, Lord willing, chapter 10 and then chapter 11. Chapter 9 is Israel's past. Israel as a nation. Their past. Chapter 10. Israel's present. And then chapter 11 is Israel's future. I want you to understand something. The United States of America has a past. Glorious past. The only problem is if, if they wouldn't have won that revolutionary war, there would have been quite a number of hangings, wouldn't there? But they won. They're revered as great heroes. That's our past. We have our present. Ah, little nebulous now. Big, big problems. What about our future? I just say pray. Folks, pray. We're not guaranteed a future. Israel is guaranteed all three. A past, a present, and a future. Why? Because the redemption plan that God had laid out before the foundations of the world were ever laid, that redemption plan flows right through the nation of Israel. You take Israel out and say they have no future. You have now violated the very vehicle, the very vessel in which God uses to bring about the salvation of the world. How do we know that? Well, let's go back to Romans chapter... Uh, my Bible almost instantly opens to it because I've been in it so much. As I of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Oh, I tell you, it's dangerous ground, folks. When we get into this, and I know I'm going to lose a few people here that may not even know what I'm talking about. When you get into this replacement theology where you say that the church has replaced Israel and Israel is just cast to the side, and you go as far as to say that 1948 was just an accident, and that soon there are nations that surround Israel will finally purge them and drive them in the Mediterranean Sea, and they'll be done with. That's what some Christians, possible Christians, might say. If Israel does not have a future, we do not have a future in our redemption. Because it flows through Israel. The Messiah, he came through Israel. Why is Israel so important to the mind and heart of God? Because that's where the Messiah would come from. The word became flesh, it says, and dwelt among us. And he was from the tribe of Judah. That's why. It is so important. There are those in Israel that are believers. There were those in Israel at the time that the Lord Jesus Christ came back that were looking for the Messiah. That's what God had desired for the nation, that they might point the nations in anticipation of the redemption that was going to come from eternity in, from heaven. They were looking for that Messiah, weren't they? What about Simeon? Simeon said, let, let, your, let your servant depart in peace. 
For mine eyes have seen the salvation. What about Andrew? Andrew took to the other disciples and he said, The Messiah! Look! We found the Messiah! Why did he say that? Because he was looking for the Messiah. Was there faith on earth? When the Lord Jesus Christ came back, He says of Him, He came unto His own, His own received Him not by the whole of Jerusalem. They did not receive Him, but there was still faith on earth. And they had the stamp of Jewishness all over them. The church began then in Rome. The church began in Corinth. No, the church began in Jerusalem. And then Judea. And then the uttermost parts of the earth. Where was its roots? Right here with the nation of Israel. And here's the problem. You say this, this salvation has, has come to the Gentile world. And you put aside, you cast aside your, uh, the, the, the nation of Israel for the rest of the Gentiles. Are you done with them, God? Do you say, well, it's the end of them? No. Through them, the adoption. The glory. By day, a wonderful cloud. By night, there was fire. The tabernacle was built and, 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 and meticulous instructions were given and they carried the tabernacle. Why did they carry the tabernacle? So they had extra weight? No, it represented the very presence and glory of the living God. Oh, the nation of Israel is so important. So they had the glory. They had the covenants, the promise that was made. They had the giving of the law. You say, well, the law, that condemns us. No, our response to the law condemns us. It condemns us only in that it shows us, Galatians tells us, that we can't keep it. Pick it up. Take it for yourself. If you want to do some self-analysis, go through. Just, just use the Ten Commandments. Let's, let's break it down. Where do you sit? Where do I sit? Guilty, guilty, guilty. That's what the law was all about. The privilege of the nation of Israel was to proclaim that message. And that soon, soon, an answer is going to come in the form of the Messiah. So there's the law. The service of God. Oh, that's, that's work. That's hard work. Man, there was, there were certain individuals that were assigned to carry certain parts of that tabernacle. And they, they were to carry those parts through. That's work, man. No, that's privilege. Listen, when we come together on Sunday morning and, and we do this in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's not work. He's ah, oh, I got that old tired feeling again. I just don't feel like it. You've boycotted a privilege. You've sidestepped the glories of God by sitting in the midst of other believers and becoming a testimony to His glory, as I mentioned this morning. Service is not drudgery. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. And the promises. 
The promises. What are the promises? Job said it this way. I know my redeemer. Boy, you said that way before Israel was even Israel. But he knew. He knew by the same Spirit of God that, that dwells in us, dwelled in him, I know my Redeemer liveth, and that one day he will stand on this earth. That's the promise. And then it goes about amplifying that promise. It says, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternal blessed God. Oh, the heart of Paul. Puts me to shame every time. We discussed this in Acts. You know, he said, I must needs go to Jerusalem. Agabus reaches out, grabs his belt, and begins to tie up his own legs and his own hands and says, the man that owns this belt will be bound the same. What did Paul's response was? Oh, maybe I ought to think this over a little bit. Well, he is a prophet. He said, don't make my heart bleed. It was a bit of satire, wasn't it? In other words, he was saying, you're not going to get me to feel sorry for myself over this. I am going. To Jerusalem. Did he go? Oh, it was so successful. Everybody got saved and it was wonderful. It was a disaster, humanly speaking. He was literally run out of town. But he had such a heart. Such a heart. For that nation. He still had a heart. Because he had conformed himself to the image of Christ. And Christ stands over Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. And it literally says he wept. He cried. Now I want you to understand something. That that revelation of Paul's love for that nation his unquestioned devotion to those of whom he had heritage with was exactly what stands in the face of some of these wrong doctrines labeled under the name Calvinism. He loved Jerusalem like the Lord Jesus Christ loves us. And he desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All should come to repentance. Three weeks ago, I may not have said that. But I do now. With absolute conviction. I do now. To say that God takes some and assigns them before they were ever born, before ever a word came out of their mouth, to hell is not biblical. I do not buy it. I have studied it for five long weeks. Every day, hours at a time, my wife can attest to that. I have 
nearly wept over this whole thing. I can't believe it. It was so difficult. But what I once believed, I do not believe anymore. There was Adam in the garden. And God says, all these trees, all these beautiful trees, so good for food, all of them at your disposal, Adam, except for one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when Adam was created, God said this, he's made in the likeness and image of God. In many ways that can be cast out. In many ways we can draw that out, but here's one way. He was given a choice. Many would say, I object. Why would God leave that tree in that garden if he knew that eventually they were going to partake of that fruit? Is God then the author of evil? Forbid it. Forbid it. He's the author of grace and mercy and long-suffering and kindness. And he has this drive in him that, that none would perish, not one. He loves you and he loves me. And that's where the word of God stands. Go back to Genesis. I, I just want you to see this. Because then we have Cain. If I can find it. Oh, yes. Chapter 4 and verse 5. It says, let's go back to verse 4. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and, 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 and their fat. And, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Now listen to what he said. He said, well, it's because I assigned Cain from before the foundations of the earth that he might be damned to everlasting destruction for all eternity. Now, he doesn't say that, does he? Let's read on. He did not respect Cain's offering, and Cain was very angry. The word, the word is actually furious. He was mad. Well, we know. To the point of what? Huh, to the point of murder. That's how furious he was. Now, here's what God said. If you do well, Will you not be accepted? Now, friends, I'm not picking up one isolated incident. You get into your Bible and you start it from Genesis all the way to through the Revelation. And you're going to see the will of man, 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 the will of man over and over and over and over again. And the choice that man had to make and the choice that the, a nation had to make and a choice that that nation had to make over and over and over again. But the Calvinist says, it's all been predestinated. God has chosen some for salvation and some for eternal destruction. Where do they get the lion's share of their evidence for this? Chapter 9 of the book of Romans. Now I'm going to swing chapter 9 a slightly different way and I'm going to have to swing it quick. Um, 
Let's go to chapter 9 and verse 6b, because I think 6a is, is in correlation with what we saw in the very beginning. Let's go back there, Romans chapter 9, and, and we have, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Let me illustrate that. Let me illustrate that with a biblical illustration. You have Jonah. Jonah was to go to Nineveh. Because Nineveh was ripe for salvation. God said, I need a servant. I need a mouthpiece. Jonah, you go. Jonah must have looked at God and said, you couldn't have asked for a worse person. I hate Nineveh. I, God, the word of God makes it perfectly clear. He absolutely dis- detested Nineveh. He had no regards for them whatsoever. God, couldn't you have found someone with just a little heart for the place? Just a, a little inkling, a little inkling of heart for the place. I mean, even if they didn't know anything about me, they didn't know where Nineveh was, they'd still go and they have a little more of a better attitude, don't you think? Why did God send Jonah? Well, in many cases, we can't know that answer. But in this case, I'm going to give it a stab. So that all the glory would be God's. Oh, I sent a most unwilling servant. I sent a servant that hates that place. We don't know exactly why he hated it so much, but he did. He said, Nineveh, go. Oh, I go to Tarsus. I'll go just the opposite way. Now, this is the providence of God. Oh, well then, of course, he, he, he went over to Tarsus and, and that's the opposite direction in Nineveh. So the, the provident will of God has been sidestepped. It's been voided out. Look what God did. He said, your boat is going to hit the shores of Nineveh. Except you won't be in a boat. But you're going to get there. My providence says you will preach to the Ninevites and they will accept the message of the great God of Israel. They will accept that. And it's going to be by your lips. And he said, no, it will not. Boom. And God said, yes, it will. Into a fish's mouth, transported to the right shore and spits him out. Oh, you see God's will will prevail. Now, let me just illustrate this to you. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Do you want a God who's not sovereign? Would you be comfortable with a God who's not sovereign? Would you be comfortable with a God who takes care of about 30% of the situations in the world and kind of boots things around a little bit, but ultimately the, the end result may be his will, it may be someone else's will, we don't know. I don't want a God like that. God is sovereign. Little boy was making a little ship and, and he has a little canal and he, a little canal goes down, down, down and, and, and he makes his little boat and he puts it in the little canal and, and the boat starts going to the right, reaches over and pops it to the left, reaches over and pops it to the left, you know, right and left. He keeps it on shore, it keeps it on course. That boat is going to make it to shore. Because that boat is your salvation and it's my salvation. It's your redemption by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and it's mine as well. 
God is absolutely sovereign. Verse number 12. We've got to move on. Um, hmm. Uh, no. Verse number 7. Nor are they all children because they are seed of Abraham. But I, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are children of the flesh. Now, this first illustration from the heritage of the nation of Israel. Again, we're, we have not moved off the nation of Israel. The subject is the, the promise being delivered to the world through this nation. We have not gone to a matter of whether it be salvation one way or the other. But he says, um, this child, that is Ishmael, was a child of the flesh. And we can look back and we can throw it into logical sequence. And we can, we can look at the story and we can say, well, I can put my finger right on the problem there. There, there's the problem right there. And there was Sarah. She went into Abraham and she said, you know, God made that promise. Wonderful promise. But I'll guarantee you that humanly speaking, I ain't got a chance to fulfill that promise. So she said, I'll give you my handmaiden, Hagar. She, she's a wonderful woman, very, very obedient. And, and, and maybe, maybe we can, maybe we can help God out on this. That's why he calls it the child of the flesh. That was the flesh talking. That was the flesh talking. So we can put our finger right down on that and say, well, there's your reasoning right there. That's it right there. Though your seed, through your seed, it was said, the whole of the nations will be blessed. And ultimately, God brought about that blessing. And suddenly she became pregnant. She, oh. It's a miracle. She's 90 years old. He's 100. This is an absolute miracle. Why didn't God just do this when they were 30? Who gets the glory? God does. The next couple is... Uh, is Rebecca and Isaac. And Isaac prayed to God, didn't he? Rebecca was barren for 20 years. The first 20 years of their marriage. So the same kind of miracle that was born out here was born out in the next section of the heritage. But here we have an amazing miracle. This woman of 90 years old became pregnant. <laughs> that way all the world would know that it was the hand of God that had done it. There is no question. It was the absolute hand of God. But what are we talking about still? Are we talking about Ishmael, who, by the way, his, his name means heard of God? Or are we talking about Isaac, these two people? No. We haven't changed subjects. We're still talking about the nation.
And how that, that nation was formulated, it was formulated, and God didn't go in and say, ah, oh, listen, uh, such and such, uh, Abraham, listen, uh, I need your advice here. What do you think I ought to do here? No. It was all of God. So then it says in verse 16, this is the conclusion. Then it is not him who wills, nor him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. He's sovereignly in control of the direction of the nations, especially that nation for which the Messiah would come forth. We can, we can sift the first illustration, quite successfully, through our little filter called reasoning. So we can put our finger down and say, oh, that was, that was the flesh. Sarah decided to help God. Did God need help? God would say, thank you, but no thank you, Sarah. I don't need your help. And later on, she became very uh, hateful to Hagar and to Ishmael. Then illustration number two. It says in verse number 10, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who wills, who calls, which is God. Okay? So here we have another situation. Before we had, we, had, uh, we had Abraham, and then we had wife Hagar and wife Sarah. But now we have just two. One mother who's having twins. This makes it a bit more difficult. And the Word of God throws in this little aspect. Um, it says, and it is said of, uh, of her, the older shall serve the younger. When did he say that? Before they're ever born. But it says in verse uh, 11, for the child not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purposes of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. And so we, we do have friends who we love, who take this and they apply it to personal salvation, to each individual's need of that personal salvation. And they basically say, Jacob saved, Esau lost. It's nations. It's nations. Turn then to Genesis chapter 25, and I think I can show this. Genesis chapter 25, and we're going to get into what I think is good evidence that what this whole chapter is dealing with is a national perspective, not a personal perspective. Genesis chapter 25 and verse 20. 
Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padam, Aram, the sister of Laban, and the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Same situation as her mother-in-law. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But when the child struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? In other words, there were twins inside of her, and there was turmoil. I mean, you know, you, you want to, you want, as a pregnant mother, you want to feel that movement, right? It must have been constant and almost painful as there seemed to be a war going on inside there. And the Lord said to her, now listen, two nations, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. Hmm. Interesting. Because Paul opens this whole section by wondering why it is that that if the Messiah is truly the sent of God Almighty, that why is it that for the majority of Israel did not accept Him? That is the great problem. And if, if Israel, the chosen of God, the elect of God as a nation, if they didn't accept Him as Messiah, why should we? But it's all in accordance with the plan of God. Jacob, the supplanter. What does that mean? Jacob, the liar. Again, all the glory goes to God Almighty. Listen, Esau, his name means Harry. Well, let's buy him some shavers. Get him a couple things, a scissor, something. We can, we can dress him up. We can make him look nice. That's not such a bad thing. But Esau, at his very inception, at his, at his, with his very name, you're a liar. You're going to deceive many. And did he? Oh, man, I just said, hey, <laughs> I'll take Harry. Leave that liar alone. God said, I'll take the liar. And I will transform that liar by the power of God Almighty into one who would one day lean on his staff and worship God. I'll take him like I took Jonah because I want the glory. You may say, oh, you left the liar aside. You took Esau instead. Oh, well, yeah, of course. Esau followed the right path. All that. By the way, was Esau cursed in his lifetime? Was he cursed in his lifetime? No, I think, I think, I'm not positive that he had 12 sons. He had 12 sons. He had herds and flocks. When, when he went to meet Esau, and Esau was 
By the way, what was Esau doing? It says the older shall serve the younger. Esau was like this. In absolute fear. And when Esau came and uh, Jacob lavished upon him all these things, he had all these gifts for him. He said, I don't need that. I got all that. He was blessed, earthly, of God. Then we get to this difficult verse. We go back to Acts, uh, Romans chapter 9. Here's the hinge pin. As it is written, this is written in Malachi now. Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Fact number one. It was 1,500 years after the two boys were buried. In other words, God had allowed the transformation, the laying out of the Edomites. And the Edomites continually stood against God Almighty in regards to his relationship with Israel. They fought him and fought him and fought him and fought him just like the two twins fought inside of their mother. It was a battle. And after all of that, he would absolutely say that compared to the love that I have for Jacob, my regard for Esau would be that of hate. Did he hate Esau? He blessed Esau. Now I want you to see something. Watch this. If he said he hated Esau, and then he said, "Oh, don't, 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 don't worry, Hagar. I'm, I'm sorry. Don't, don't, don't worry. I'm going to take care of you, Esau. It was a wrong family, but I'm going to take care of you." And he did. He blessed him greatly. Then how did he hate him? Nationally, Esau is a representative of what? The Edomites. Do a history check on the Edomites. They stand in direct rebellion to the nation of Israel all the way along its history. So again, emphasizing, yeah, nation, not person. Now this is, this is their key verse. Oh, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Oh, you see, he assigns some to, to heaven, he, he assigns some to salvation, he takes others and he just damns them. That is not the Bible I read. It's just not. Are there good men that are Calvinists? And there again, Calvinists, Armenians. I'm a Paul and I'm a Paulus. And Paul turns around and says, Did I die for you? How dangerous is that? That is so odiously dangerous, it's unbelievable. And, and in the first century church, it was confronted by Paul, and he said, I did, I wasn't crucified for you. Look to the Lord. And now we're turning around and doing the very same thing, but I'm a Calvinist. Well, good for you. I'm an Armenian. That's the other side of the spectrum. I'm a Biblicist. That's all I'll ever label myself. And that's from Thomas Wheeler. 
I'm a biblicist. I'm going to look at Scripture from cover to cover. I'm going to go from cover to cover all the way through Scripture. Look at, look at the other cover. I want you to see this. Look at the other cover. Revelation. Chapter, the very last chapter. Listen to this. Does this sound like a God who's got it all predestined already? Does this sound like a God who's got it all designated already? You're over here, you're over here, you're over here. <laughs> so arbitrarily, we just, whatever, you know, in sort of an arbitrary fashion. No way. Listen to these words. Verse 17 of the very last chapter 22 in Revelation, and the Spirit and the bride say, Come! Come! Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you. Come! I'm sorry. I, I can't say that I put all the pieces together. But I can't accept that he turns to one unborn without any knowledge of anything. Existence. Anything. And he says, you're dead. So the very last portion of the scripture, he's still begging people, come, come to me, come to me. And if you come to me, I will in no wise. In other words, I'm not going to turn. He's saying, well, let me see now. What's your label? Ah, wrongly labeled. Sorry. I will in no wise cast out. We're out of time. I'm almost glad, but I'm going to just show you one one more thing just before we go, because I, I think this is important. That we get a little bit of a handle, because here's another problem that they come up with. Therefore, verse 18, he has mercy on whom he will, and, and whom he wills, he hardens. Whoa. Well, what were we talking about? Pharaoh. Hmm. Well, that seems rather personal, doesn't it? Guess who Pharaoh had a hold of? The whole apple of God's eye was in his possession. Israel! That's why it comes up. Is it personal Pharaoh? I think he's represented the nation of Egypt who kept him in bondage for 400 years. It was Pharaoh who had the apple of God's eye and God said, I'm going to get them back. And his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills He hardens nationally, absolutely. He's elected us and predestined nationally. He has done that. Then you go up to verse 19. And you will say then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? And then the Calvinists lean very heavily on verse number 20. Because this is what they do. If you stand against them, you are going to hear verse number 20. What if God, uh, excuse me, um, uh, verse number 20, but indeed, O man, 
Who are you? replies against God. Will the thing formed saying to him, who formed it? And we're going to go into the potter's thing, and I've got no more time to go into it, so I won't. But this, needless to say, I'm going to say this. Romans chapter 11, I want you to go to Romans chapter 11 and verse 25. It says this. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that the blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, let's put that in light of verse number uh, 19. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? What he's saying is this, that God has caused Israel... Get that back now. To be blind. In order that the Gentile nations might come in. They committed adultery. They walked against God. They did this against God, that against God. So Israel is going to turn right around and say, then how can you blame us? If your divine predetermined plan included the Gentile nations, how can you blame us for being idolatrous and you turning your back on us? You had to turn your back on us in order to include the Gentiles. I think that's the swing of that. That's not what many brothers of ours in Calvinism believe. But I think that's the swing of that. It's still talking nationally. Chapter 11, it's still talking nationally. Chapter 12, it's all to prove that God has not given up on his nation, Israel. And to pull in personal salvation into this, I think is in great error and causes you more trouble in your hermeneutic, to feed the rest of the scriptures through that hermeneutic, you are going to get... It's going to be a stumbling block is what it's going to be. He's willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We'll go a little bit deeper this evening, I'm sure. I may find something else to do and not be here. I think I might hold up a sign saying, don't ask me. I don't know. Maybe a little. We'll be there. We'll go into it a little more deeper this evening. It is definitely the meat of the word. This ain't the milk. If you think it's the milk, I challenge you. Dig into it. I challenge you anyway to dig into because you're not going to get the whole thing from me. <laughs> you didn't get half. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It was a very ill presentation, other than what the Holy Spirit had to say. Very ill presentation today. You have got to dig into 9, 10, and 11 on your own. And it may take you months, if not years. And guess what? When you're going to get out, you're still going to be looking through a glass. Dim. You think you're going to come up with all the answers? Century after century after century, they've looked, they've looked. Still no answers.
Why? Because we have an infinite author and we have finite readers. You can't stuff God in your brain. And I don't want to. I don't want to. I want a bigger God than that. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ who will run, one day reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And when we see Him, maybe some of these difficult questions might be answered. But until then, our Father, may we find ourselves worshiping and praising and adoring Him, the fairest Lord Jesus. We give you thanks. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.